0: I say that half in jest and certainly half serious. Uh, if, if there's anything that Satan would want to distract, it would be God's church from God's global mission. So I take that for what it's worth. It's actually worth a whole lot. Um, but hey, Isaiah 49, here we go. John, thanks for that execution. That's flawless uh, back here. I was thinking I would grab your lapel mic, but see, John's the detail guy. He just gets it all worked out perfect for me, and uh, I appreciate that. So that's the pastor of missions back there. Um, hey, Isaiah 49 page 609, and the Bibles we provide for you there in the rows. And I think we should pray before we uh, jump into this sermon, okay? So let's uh, let's pray again. Father, we do thank you that you are the God who saves, that you are the God who loves us more than we can imagine. And Father, we uh, rejoice that you have not only saved us, but you've called us to arise and to be on mission with you. So God, I pray that uh, as we dive into your word this morning, Lord, that you would open our hearts to hear from your word, that we would receive your word with meekness, the implanted word, which is able to save our souls, Lord, and to sanctify us and to send us out on mission with you. So God, would you have your way with us? God, I pray that even in the stillness of this moment, that we could just all pray individually, that you would work in our hearts to give us your heart the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, most of you are probably aware of the scandal surrounding Donald Sterling uh, with his racist comments over the past week. If you haven't been following that story, Donald Sterling is the uh, owner, the soon to be ousted owner of the Los Angeles Clippers professional basketball team. And so uh, in a conversation with his girlfriend, Sterling made some uh, derogatory and racist remarks about black people. And I don't think his, his views are limited to, to black people, sadly enough. Um, but he said uh, to his, his girlfriend, really better called his mistress, to stop associating with black people and to stop bringing them to his games. Now, when this went Viral. There was a a national outcry, outrage at these comments, and thankfully, uh, the NBA, the National Basketball Association, acted swiftly to actually ban him from for life from uh, their their league, and uh, he will be in due time, really believe, uh, forced to sell his ownership of the Los Angeles Clippers. So uh, as, we, as we think about these real life events and, and these real uh, struggles of the human heart, the sin in the human heart, uh, why would we bring up Donald Sterling this morning, okay? Why even give him any airtime, right? Uh, well, well here, here's why. Because when we go to Isaiah 49, what we see is a God who loves all the peoples of the world, Okay? So just, just hear this really well this morning. God is not a white God, a black God, a brown God, a yellow God, a red God, okay? God is God. And God is not even, you know, we might say God is colorblind. You know, he sees, he sees through, through the, the exterior into the heart. And, and I think it actually would be more appropriate not to say that God is colorblind, but to say that God is... Super color rich. Okay? Think about that. God has super vision. He is more than, are you ready for this? Tetrachromatic. All right? Now, I just learned this about this this week. Okay? What does it mean to be tra- tetrachromatic? Someone who is tetrachromatic, okay, it's believed that a few human beings have this ability, but some animals, some fish and other animals, actually have the capacity within their vision to process colors in four information systems, four cones, okay? So they can see colors that you and I could never see. So if you're colorblind this morning, I'm not trying to discourage you, okay, but you're, you're not even probably like most of us in the room, and you're certainly not like these uh, tetrachromatic uh, animals or even maybe a few people that have that rare gift in the world. And so as we, as we think about this God, who has super vision to love all the peoples of the world, I want us to really weigh out this question in our heart. How tetrachromatic are we? What kind of vision do we possess for those around us? Because you see, it's one thing to say, oh, you know, Donald Sterling, man, this guys he's a a racist, and this and that, And, and, and to say, you know what, I would never say things like that. I would never discriminate against anyone, and I hope that's true of your heart, but there is a big difference between simply refusing to discriminate against someone because that is right, and also loving all people with great love because that is also right. Do you understand where I'm going there? So we are called to love and the God that Isaiah 49 presents is a God who loves all the nations. I love the book of Isaiah. Some scholars call Isaiah the fifth gospel. And as we get into the latter chapters, chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50, and chapters 52 and 53, we have what are known as the four servant songs, okay? These four passages, point to this one who is called, in every passage, the servant of the Lord. And as we're going to see, they are prophecies of the coming Messiah. And so what we're going to learn in this passage is that the light of Christ shines to the ends of the earth to bring God's salvation. All right? God's God, The light of Christ shines to the ends of the earth to bring salvation. God's salvation. So what I want us to do is consider this truth, and then we're going to look at six implications of what this truth should mean for the life of our church, okay? So first off, the light of Christ is God's means of global salvation. Let me read these first two verses in Isaiah 49. It says this, "'Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar.'" The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. He made my mouth sharp like a sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, and in his quiver, he hid me away. So we see in verses one and two that Jesus deserves global attention. For the first time in Isaiah 49, verse 1, we have the servant actually speaking. No one is talking about the servant. The servant himself is speaking. And so now as we read the Old Testament through a New Testament lens, we know that this is Jesus speaking, saying, I am the servant of the Lord. Listen to me, O coastlands and those who dwell from afar. And look at what is true of this servant, okay? Number one, it says that he is called from the womb. God had a plan, a a sovereign plan to send his son, and he was born of the Virgin Mary, entered into time and space to be the savior of the world. And we see this then further explained by his name that is given. It says in in verse uh, one at the end that, that from the body of my mother, he named me. And we know that his name was to be Jesus, right? And what does Jesus mean? God saves But what we're going to find in this passage is that the name Jesus is not given, but the name Israel is given. Because Israel would be the instrument through which God would bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. As we read on in verse 2, we see that his ministry will be one that is accomplished through his word going forth. Did you see verse 2? He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And so we have this imagery of battle, swords and arrows. And and we sometimes uh, maybe get a little nervous about this warfare language, but this is warfare. The imagery of warfare did not come as Israel anticipated or even we might expect today. You see, his warfare is one of the word, the word going forth, his word. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. And when Jesus speaks, he speaks effectively. You see, his his sword is sharp. It it cuts like it is intended to. That's why a, a knife or a sword was made to cut and to be effective in its cutting. And so, men, I'm sure you can appreciate this. This is kind of warming up finally in New England. It's, it's grill season, right? So when you're, when you're making those steaks on the grill, you're not going to bring that inside and say, hey, give me a plastic butter knife to, to dive into my steak, right? I mean, it's just it's ineffective, right? It's not sharp. And so we see that this sword is sharp. It's effective. It accomplishes the purposes for which it is sent out. And that's seen also in the polished sword, it's rubbed free from imperfections that it might fly straight and hit the intended target. And so I love what Ray Ortland Jr. says when he says, Jesus emerges in history to conquer not by military might or cultural imperialism, but by the force of truth. This is how Jesus advances his mission. It is a mission of the word and it is by the force of truth that he will advance his mission in the world. So the first couple of verses tell us that Jesus is uniquely called and uniquely qualified for this mission. Jesus is deserving of global attention. But we also then see in the the next four verses that Jesus will fulfill a global mission. Look at verses three through five with me. What does it say? And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God. And now the Lord says, "'He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, "'to bring back Jacob to him, "'and that Israel might be gathered to him. "'For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, "'and my God has become my strength.'" So we ask the question in verses three through five, who is Israel in this passage? And as we're reading through the Bible, we would automatically think Israel is always referring to the nation Israel, right? But we see here that this is the name given to the servant. He says to me, my servant Israel. And so what's what's going on here? Well, God sends his servant and he names him Israel to bring back Israel. So what's going on in the Old Testament? You have God's people in the Abrahamic covenant that are told It's through them that the nations of the world would be blessed. They were supposed to be the instrument of God's blessing to extend his salvation to the ends of the earth. But there was a really huge problem with that task, and this is it. Israel was in need of grace and salvation themselves. So we just go back to chapter 48, verse 1. Look at this. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, And who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel. But now look at this last phrase, but not in truth or right. The nation of Israel was was in immorality. They weren't living for God. They weren't living according to God's truth. We see this in one of my favorite verses in in the Old Testament, verse 18 of chapter 48. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. It's a good word for us to hear. Because if you had, then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. So Israel's job was to shine forth the light of God's salvation, but they were in need of God's salvation themselves. Israel was to be what is spoken of Jesus, the one in whom God would be glorified, the one in whom God would be lit up to show how great that he is. That's what it means to glorify God. And yet they failed in that time and time and time again. And so God, in his grace, sends his son to be, as we looked at a few weeks ago, the true and greater Israel who would glorify God in all of his ways and be the one to whom he could shine the light of God's salvation to the ends of the earth, thus fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. So then we move on to verse six, and we see that God's plan is so much greater than a simple plan for Israel. What does it say in verse six? I love this verse. He says, it is too light a thing, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so what I want to do is I want to focus on these last two phrases where it says that he will make this servant As a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And what I want to do is work backwards and look at the what of God's mission and then examine the how of God's mission. Okay? So first, what is is the what of God's mission? It says at the end of verse 6 that his salvation may reach to the end of the earth. See, I love love how the verse starts. It says, It is too light a thing. It is too small a thing that the servant would be just a savior for Israel. I mean, to put it maybe in in our terms today, no one's going to call up Emeril Lagasse and ask him to make a hot pocket for them. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you might call me up for a hot pocket but you're not calling up a master chef and asking him to put a little hot pocket in the microwave for you to enjoy for dinner, right? And no one is calling God's Messiah and giving him a regional mission, okay? This, this servant is given a global mission, And so it says that his salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Uh, Alec Moyer, who's a a Hebrew scholar, he says that this more accurately, accurately reads in the Hebrew that you may be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So it's not that Jesus just simply communicates God's salvation, but he actually is God's salvation himself. He is the instrument and he is the source of God's salvation. And as we began to look at last week, this is is what the Bible says that God's vision is for the world, that every people would become worshipers of God. Revelation 7, 9 and 10 says this, after this I looked, this is the end vision, this is where everything is heading, okay? After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So who who is there? As our friends in India would say in Hindi, Harik Jati, Harik cool harak basha harak log every people every nation every tribe every language are standing around the throne and what are they doing they are worshiping god that is the end goal of mission and so this is where this whole thing is going that all peoples of the world would be worshiping god so this is why on sunday mornings when we pray for the world you hear us talking about people groups and John talked about this a little bit last week. What is a people group? The International Mission Board defines a people group as this it's an ethnolinguistic group with a common self identity that is shared by the various members. Okay, so just if you remember this one word, ethnolinguistic, it is a group of people that share a common language and Most likely a common ethnicity so that the shared customs and rules and practices of their society are are kind of gathered together amongst this one particular people. That's a people group. So we pray for all the families, all the people groups of the world. This is the language of Genesis 12. And as we're going to see next week, this is the language of Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. God wants his salvation to go to every people group on the planet. And so when we say a people is unreached, what we mean by that is that less than 2% of those people are evangelical Christian believers in Christ, really experiencing God's salvation in Christ. So this is the, the, the priority where we want to put our mission efforts and prayers and dollars. Not that God doesn't care about the rest of the world. He certainly does. But he wants to see the gospel go to all people. So we pray for unreached peoples. But then also, if you want to get really fancy and become a missiologist this morning, okay, we also talk about not only UPGs, but UUPGs, okay? And, and UUPGs are unengaged unreached people groups. You say, well, what does that mean, Tanner? It means that these pockets of people where less than 2% are believers don't even have an active church planting strategy to reach them. So you say, well, Tanner, we're praying for them. Like, isn't that engagement at some level? No, no. I mean, it's, it's praying that there would be engagement, but it's not engagement until someone gets their boots on the ground and starts speaking the message of Christ to them that they might be saved. So we want to talk about people groups and unreached people groups and unengaged unreached people groups at Redemption Hill. So if you look at this map, this is the global status of evangelization map. And you'll be able to see it a little bit better on this side. You can see where there are green dots, which are more reached areas of the world. But then these red dots, okay, you can see India there. You can see uh, parts of China, Indonesia. These are UUPGs, unengaged, unreached people groups. So now the light bulbs might be going off. Why, we would say we want to adopt a people group in India to take the gospel to them because they have yet to hear of the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. This is the what of God's mission, that his salvation might reach to the very ends of the earth. But then the question is, how does that happen? And we find it in the phrase before it. It says that he makes this servant a light for the nations. Jesus is a light for the nations. What is the purpose of light? It's to reveal. It's to illuminate. It's to is to make known that which was not seen before. So let's just use our handy-dandy projector screen here. This screen is a little more difficult to see because the bulb in it is about three years old and it's not shining as brightly. So if I go over here and I look at this one, we just bought this one a few weeks ago because our church is growing and we need more seats and we need more projection screens, okay? Two's probably enough. Um, so, so you can see this one really well. Light makes things visible. Okay, so we're working on this, by the way, okay? Just give us a little time. We're working on it. We, we see these things, but help us out when you see stuff that's awry around the church. We'll, we'll, help, we'll, we'll help make things happen. But, but light makes things visible. And what else does light do? Light also exposes and cancels out darkness, So Isaiah had prophesied earlier in chapter 9, verse 2, when he said of this of the Messiah, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So God sends his light, Jesus Christ, to shine the light of his salvation so that those who dwell in darkness might receive the light of God. So it should not surprise us then when we go to read the gospel, John 8 verse 12, what does Jesus say? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus came to give life, okay? Jesus didn't come to restrict us. He came to to liberate us and to bring God's salvation for us. So as we think about Christ's ministry, I want us just to dive down a little bit here, okay? There is a great mystery in the mission and ministry of Christ. You say, well, what do you mean, Tanner? Consider this. Where did Jesus spend all of his time in ministry? First century Palestine, Right? He he spent his days roaming through, bringing the gospel to the areas of of Israel, and, 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 and that was his locale for his mission. So then we say, well, if he's the life for the nations, then why did he spend all of his time there? And this is where we come into play. Jesus equipped 12 disciples and several beyond them to not only experience his salvation, but then to be the bearers of his salvation to the very ends of the earth. So at the end of the gospel of John, we find the great commission in John's gospel, which says in chapter 20, verse 21, as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So just as God sent Jesus to be the light of the world, now Jesus sends his disciples, which includes us if we have believed in him, to be his bearers of salvation to share this good news with the world. And so that's why we not only see that the light of Christ is the means of God's global salvation, but number two, we are called to participate in his global mission today. We are called to participate in God's global mission today. So what I want to do is I want to give you six implications for what I believe, what we see in Isaiah 49 is true of the Messiah and his mission, then how we can work that out faithfully as a church right here in Medford, Massachusetts, to be a global church that's on board with God's global mission. Because, if, by the way, that's why we're here. Our, our mission statement, you can see it right over here. We exist to glorify God. How do we do that? By living out his mission, all right? So what are the six implications? Here we go, I just gave you the first one. This is God's mission, okay? God has a mission in the world, and it belongs to him. I love what Chris Wright says in his book, The Mission of God. Listen to this, this is good. It is not so much that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. You see that? Listen, there was was no church when God's mission began. We had fallen in Adam. We were all lost in our sin, and God started his work of redemption right there in the garden, to raise up the one who would bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. So before the church even existed, mission existed. God's redemptive plan is an eternal plan of redemption. And so it's not that, hey, here we are, God, give us something to do. It's, hey, God's already doing something and we get on board with what he is doing. This is his mission. So we join him in his message. Mission: We do not save anyone, but we bring the message of salvation to those who need to hear of Christ. And this is really good news, okay? That salvation is God's business. That's what we're going to cry out in Revelation, save it for all eternity. Salvation belongs to our God, and what, is, what does that mean? It means that that He is the one who works His salvation in our hearts. And this, what does this do for us who share the gospel? It gives us a lot of freedom, right? It takes the pressure off. All we do is sow the seed of the word and it's God's job to make that word effective by his spirit so that the light of salvation comes into their heart and God saves them. So we're like the, 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 the farmer in Mark 4, that parable where it says that a sower goes out to sow the seed and he, and he goes to sleep and he doesn't know how it grows, but yet God gives the growth. So we sow, we sleep, we trust God with his salvation. And this is really important because I know if you're like me, you have friends, you have family who you've been praying for, who you've been sharing with, and they are yet to receive the salvation Christ offers to them. And so I wanna tell you that if you ever get frustrated, if you ever get wearied in the mission, you are in good company because we read in verse four of Isaiah 49 that this servant, Jesus, says what? I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. I mean, Jesus, listen, in his earthly mission, Jesus, being fully God and fully man, experienced frustration. The crowds came to him just to receive what he had to offer. He would give hard sayings about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which just means to fully identify with him and to participate with him. And people turned away and walked away. Jesus also was frustrated in his mission at times. And yet he also fully depended on the divine strength of God in faith because we see at the end of verse four, it says, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God. So there is confidence. We can have confidence in God's mission because he is the one who brings salvation. Number two, every people group on the planet matters to God. Every people group on the planet matters to God. We saw this in Revelation 7. Harak Jati, Harak Basha, Harak Kul, Harak log. 77 million Muslims in Iran need to hear the gospel of Christ. 1.4 billion people in China, most of whom have not yet heard of the gospel of Jesus, being taught that there is no God. And then 1.3 billion people in India. 1.3 billion people in India. 73 million in our focus state and 3.8 million in our focus city need to hear the gospel of Christ. So this is why we want to take the gospel to the peoples of India. There are 20 UUPGs in the state where we're focusing in India. Do you remember what those are? Unengaged, unreached people groups. So this is why we want to invest. The missionary team that we work with, here's their, here's their a vision, that there would be a healthy church among every jati, every people group in their region of India. And so that's why we're excited. I mean, we want to send teams. We want to give. We want to go. We want to encourage the the missionaries that are there, our national partner that is there laboring to multiply churches in India. And and here's some good news. I hope that you already begin praying about how you can be involved with our partnership in India. But but in the meantime, all you need to do is like ride the T and look around because there are hundreds of people groups in greater Boston. And we have a unique city. God has providentially placed us in Boston. And we don't just have to go to the nations. We want to do that. And we want to recognize that the nations have come to us. So just go to soccer nights this summer. Okay, here's a plug, little commercial, Chris, John. Okay, if you, if you want to volunteer for soccer nights, you're going to touch the nations. Because every year I make people from every corner of the globe. They've come here to live, to study, to work. And we have an opportunity to be bearers of God's salvation to them. So again, how then will we accomplish God's mission? Number three, his word is sufficient for his mission. Just as Jesus has a sword, a sharp sword coming out of his mouth to to effectively bring his salvation to people. Listen, we don't have to look for other methods to get this job done. God has given us His Word. His Word brings life. And so I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 when he ties all of this together the unbelief and darkness of those who have yet to experience God's light and the Word of truth, which brings the light of God's salvation and the glory of Christ. Let me read chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Look at this. I've italicized a bit for you, so you can follow. It says this: and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now don't miss this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You see that? How does God bring his light into the world and expose the darkness that is in the human heart? It's through the word of Christ going forth so that the glory of Christ might be made known and that his light might bring salvation, canceling out that which was darkness. And God speaks life into existence with his word when people believe in Christ by grace through faith. Our mission is a word-based mission. But we must not only carry the word, we also must live the word. This brings us to implication number four, okay? Holiness matters in the mission of God. Holiness matters in the mission of God. You say, well, where is this in the passage, Isaiah 49? Let me just say, it it's, runs through what it means to experience salvation in Christ. So let me turn this a couple of ways. Number one, we have been brought back to God. This God who is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. This God who is holy. We have been reconciled back to God, and now, because we are now in him, we have become light ourselves. This is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 5. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk, therefore, as children of light. You see, God shines his light in our hearts and he gives us the opportunity then to display his light, to glorify him by the way that we live our lives. So I know maybe you get tired of hearing this, like get in the word and live the word, get in the word and live the word, get in the word and live the word. But if, if, we, I mean, if we're bored of hearing that, I'm just gonna be, it's probably because we're not getting in the word and living the word. It's just, it's just not boring, okay? So we're gonna keep on saying it, like every single Sunday, because this is where life is found. This is where mission flourishes, when the people of God take the word, share it, and live it out that all people might know of Christ. Number five, mission thrives through humble service. Let's not miss the fact that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is called the servant of the Lord. What does it mean to, to serve someone? We simply put them above ourselves, right? We take the position of humility and we put their desires above our desires. And so I think it's safe to say that the greatest obstacle to mission today is not money. It's not resources. It's not persecution. It's us. We are the greatest hindrance to God's mission being fulfilled today because we prefer our own comfort, our own pleasure above the salvation of the world. And you say, Tanner, that sounds harsh. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saying if we, if, if we don't wrestle with this, And and I'm I'm trying to wrestle with this myself. What areas of my life can I sacrifice? What areas can I cut out? What can I rearrange my schedule to spend a little less time on Tanner and a little more time on the globe because God cares about 7 billion people and not just me? When can we say their life is more important than my life? So we would be willing to go. We would be willing to sacrifice. There are some great stories from church history. One is about a missionary named John G. Patton. He was a pastor in Scotland experiencing a fruitful ministry. And God pricked his heart to go to the New Hebrides Islands, okay, in the, in the, in the South Pacific, I believe. And it's no longer called that today. But um, there were actually cannibals who lived on that island. And so there was a man in his church named Mr. Dixon, and Mr. Dixon stood up and said to Patton, Patton, you're going to be eaten alive. You're going to be eaten by cannibals. What are you thinking? Why don't you go somewhere else? Why don't you stay here? And listen to Patton's response. He said this, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. This is a heart of service and servanthood and sacrifice that would say, I will go wherever God calls me to go at whatever cost because the reward is so much greater. But there is a significant cost. And so if we're being roasted, this is not easy, this is hard. We can't do this in our own strength and that would be correct, which leads us to our sixth implication. We must go in his strength. This is what Jesus says at the end of verse five. My God has become my strength, and so if mission is to be done at all, it must be done in the strength that God supplies. We just sang about this, right? We we fight with the sword that makes the wounded hoe, whole. This church that is arising up, and God puts strength in every stride so that we can be about His mission. And so it's, listen, it's through the rhythms of grace. We talk about these all the time. It's through daily depending on God and prayer in the word and giving ourselves away for the sake of others and dying to ourselves that we might have life in God, that we are filled with his strength by his spirit to fulfill his mission. And so here's what I'd like to do. I wanna give you just two simple challenges. I'm gonna call this for Monday, all right? Because this isn't about, the couple hours that we meet here on Sunday, okay, this is about a God who transforms every moment of our lives. So what are a couple of challenges for Monday? Here here we go. Number one, I want to encourage you to consider praying for one of our missionaries once a week for the next four months. You say, "Why, why, why this formula? Well, one, it takes you through the summer, Okay, so until September, if you could choose one missionary, maybe it's one region, maybe it's one people group. Okay, we'll put some information in a newsletter this week, but we're going to present some summer missionaries this morning. Maybe you'll pray for one of them just one day a week. That's like 16 times where you're just coming to God in prayer saying, God, I want to see the gospel go forth to the nations, so I'm going to take some of my time and sacrifice it that you might empower these efforts. So one, pray for one of our missionaries once a week for the next four months. But then number two, we're going to talk more about this, but decide how generous you can be in giving to our annual Great Commission offering. Okay, so let me just cut to the chase. Okay, Redemption Hill, every dollar that's given on Sunday morning it's put in the baskets or dropped through the mail to our P.O. box. Almost 20% of that is going outside of our church for the sake of, of Global Missions, But we also then take up a special offering once a year that 100% of it is going to global missions, about 75% of that, and then 25% to national missions and unreached places of North America, like Boston, like Toronto, another one of our strategic partnerships. So John's gonna share more about this Great Commission offering, but, but here's, it just, it starts with prayer, right? God, what can I do? God, what can I sacrifice maybe over the next month or two or three or ten so that I can give more of what you've entrusted to me for the sake of your mission in the world? Here's what we're after with this global mission series. Okay, let me just kind of you know, put this away, fireside chat, just for a moment. Okay, There are a lot of churches who talk a good game about loving the world, but in practice, they are really ambivalent about the Great Commission. You say, Tanner, what does this look like? Well, we, we, we say things like this. Hey, I, I'm, I'm really glad that they are going overseas. Hey, glow, this is a really good idea. For them. Hey, we'll we'll be praying for you, right? And and, I mean, we can mean that with sincerity and really be about it, or we can just kind of excuse it. We can just drop a few dollars in a Great Commission offering to ease our conscience. Hey, we've been about the globe, and we're good to go until next year when we collect the offering again. Hey, listen, we do not want to be that kind of church. We want to be a church that really loves the world because Christ loves the world so much that he died for the world on a Roman cross that all might experience salvation in him. So let's put our proverbial money where our mouth is and not be a church ambivalent about the Great Commission, but a church that is passionate to see the nations reach for the glory of God. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you would, in a strange and mysterious way, choose to include us not only in salvation, but also to be a part of your global mission. So God, I confess, starting with me, that there are many weeks where the only time I pray for global missions is when we pray in corporate prayer on Sundays. And God, I am ashamed of that. So, Lord, would you work in us a deeper passion for the world? God, that we would want to see every people, every tribe, every language, every nation, one day with us around your throne, worshiping you and that beautiful kaleidoscope that heaven will be when we're all gathered around your throne will result in praise and honor and glory and might and strength to you. So Lord, I pray that you would, just as we've been praying, that you would make your uh, face shine upon us, that you be gracious to us and bless us, that, that we might be used as instruments in your hands to be about this great task. Lord, would you stir us to pray, stir us to give, stir us to go, stir us to send, stir us to encourage those that are going, that you might be glorified in all the world. We pray this in Christ's name.